0: So it's good that you're here in this kind of weather. Find your Bibles, take your copy of God's Word, and find 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Today, we start a three-part series entitled, Hurting on the Way to Heaven. The church at Corinth was a carnal church. They were full of gross errors in their faith and practice. They were unholy, they were divided, there was sexual immorality, there were claims of spiritual superiority, and they were full of something that the Bible says God hates, and that's human pride. So in chapter 4, Paul explained something to them that they did not understand. I'm just going to jump straight into this subject this morning. He took them to the cross, and he explained that the cross means we will suffer for following him now there's an old school way to put this uh, and in fact i think it's making a comeback it's called the cruciform life the cruciform life simply means we're to die to self and live for jesus we're to put away all sin any sin every sin and make our lives cross shaped now why the cross Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned, and God shed the blood of an animal to clothe them. And from that moment forward, mankind learned that a blood offering was necessary to cover sin. So as you go through the Old Testament, you see animals relentlessly being slaughtered. There is, in a sense, a perpetual sea of blood in the Old Testament. God was teaching humanity that sin leads to death and that the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. It all pointed to the one whose blood would be shed once for all so that our sins could be forgiven. Now, there is no more blood sacrifice today. Jesus' death was the sacrifice given once for all for the forgiveness of sins. He paid for sin on the cross. So the cross is central to this book. It's central to our lives. Jesus told us we're to take up the cross daily. It's a cruciform life. And there's something about the cruciform life that cannot be avoided. It means we will suffer For Jesus' name, and many of you today are doing exactly that. Now, before we keep going, we have to say that there are sermons that almost make it sound as if the harder your life is, the happier you should be. You know, your dog died, your house burned, you lost your job, but you're a believer, so smile. Or there's the teaching that life is a bubble bath, and if you're suffering, just speak words of blessing into your life, and believe it and it will happen, and if it doesn't happen, it's because your faith is weak. Well, that's not in this Bible, and we don't live in that world. Now, the truth is you can live above your circumstances, but you can't live apart from your circumstances, and I know that some of you are more beaten up than you could possibly have imagined whatever happened to you. If you belong to this fellowship of suffering, know that you're in good company. The Bible says the Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. He walked in the dark valley of Gethsemane knowing this world hated him and his friends would abandon him. He came and blessed the world, and in return he was criticized, vilified, publicly humiliated, nailed to a cross, and killed. That's the fellowship of the suffering are you in that fellowship this morning? Paul was a charter member. He lived this cruciform life. He never flinched from it, and he died because of it. So the question we want to answer is, how do we advance in this life while living this cruciform life without letting the pain of life just absolutely derail us? That's what we want to look at this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look with me in verse 8. The Bible says, and we're breaking into the middle of a sentence, Paul said, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now, let's jump down to verse 15. It says 16 in your bulletin, but let's go to 15. It says, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. Number one, let's consider the pain of adversity as you advance through life. Paul says there are multiple adversities. In verse 8, he said we're afflicted in every way. Paul lived with an avalanche of trouble. Later in this book, you find that he has a thorn in the flesh, and the Bible says it was a messenger of Satan sent by the devil to attack him. He asked God three times to remove it, and God did not remove it. He left it there to keep him humble. God hates pride, so he has ways of getting it out of us. And that's good news because the Bible repeatedly said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But that thorn was just part of his multiple adversities. The Bible says he was shipwrecked, snake-bitten, in danger from rivers, bandits, countrymen, Gentiles, and false brethren. Here's a man who at various times in his life was hungry, thirsty, and think about this this morning, cold and naked. (laughs) And at the end of his life, he received a death sentence from a government for, from crimes he did not commit. So there are multiple adversities, but then there are mental adversities. In verse 8, it says he was perplexed. That word means not knowing how to proceed, determine, speak, or act. We can think of it in another way. Stress, cortisol levels. We experience this. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples went out in a boat and ended up in a raging storm. And they were so afraid, they said to Jesus, Do you not care that we are perishing? That's a question born out of great stress. So there are mental adversities. But there are also social adversities. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. The world persecuted him. Right from the beginning, when he was first saved, he had to escape from the city of Damascus by being lowered in a basket over the city wall. He was later imprisoned, stoned, beaten, and left for dead. And we could keep talking about this, but he faced multiple mental and social adversities, and many of you today can say, that's where I live, Right, that's my address. One writer gave three examples, and we're going to double back to these three. Number one. You're a devoted young parent watching your two-year-old die of cancer. Meanwhile, you get on social media and see other parents post about their latest field trip or their kids' sports achievements. And you wonder, why me, Lord? Number two. You're a 39 year old single person who loves Jesus and you've always wanted to be married. Meanwhile, you have a shallow 25 year old friend who's marrying someone who appears to be godly and wise, and you wonder, why not me, Lord? Number three, you're a hardworking businessman who, fall, who holds fast to good ethics, but you see a deceitful co worker lie and manipulate his way to the top, and you wonder, where is justice, Lord? Now, that's the pain of adversity as we advance through life. We could illustrate this all day. We need to understand, number two, there's a profit of adversity as you advance through life. Look again at verses 8 and 9. You might be disheartened by adversity this morning, but you are not being defeated. Verse 8, afflicted, yes. Crushed, no. Perplexed, yes, but not despairing. Despairing means you have no hope. There's always hope in Jesus persecuted if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus you will be persecuted people will hate you if you stand on this book they will like you if you do not but you will never be forsaken Jesus will never leave you no matter what struck down maybe flat on your back but you will not be destroyed that's a promise of God but these verses describe in a way for us this cruciform life it's the process where God brings us to the end of ourself so we'll turn to him and give ourselves to him in total love trust and submission so that the goal of our life is to live for Jesus but there's a more specific reason God wants to bring us into this cruciform life look at verse 10 Paul said, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. The life of Jesus in you is made plain to others through you when you are dead to self and he is ruling and reigning in your life. Therefore, God has to do a deep and permanent work in us before he will do his eternal work through us. And this process, it is something no book, no class can teach you. Now, why does God have to do this in order to manifest his life through us? And the reason is the cruciform life destroys our pride. It turns it to dust. It brings us into a posture of humility. It creates in us a teachable spirit. We become more compassionate toward other people, but it does something far more powerful than anything we've mentioned so far. I want you to think about the power of the atom, A-T-O-M. For all of human history, mankind had the most explosive power in the universe, but for most of human history, it was unknown. Once the atom was split, an indescribable amount of energy was released. But first, it had to be split. You can take that analogy and apply it to us. We have to be split. We have to be broken. You have the resurrection life of Jesus in you, but his life will be invisible as long as you function in your own strength. Once the cross breaks us of self, that's when his life is made manifest, visible to other people. And every Christian will be brought into this cruciform life at some point. The question is twofold. It's very important. Will you recognize it when it's happening? And will you submit to it as God's will for your life? If you don't understand God and his ways, you'll be shattered when you experience pain, adversity, discouragement, and unsolvable problems. You begin to question God. Doubt his love, grow angry, bitter, detached, touchy, or you'll just simply give up. Now, friends, this cruciform life, it will happen to a believer. So it's very important that you recognize it, trust God through it, and see God's purposes for it. Now, we could put all this a different way. Instead of calling it the cruciform life, we could just call it pruning. Jesus said, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Well, what's pruning? You take something and you cut it. You take, snap it off. Growth can't occur, occur without pruning. Pruning is the removal of branches that don't cooperate with the rest of the body. There are parts of our life that stand in the way of bearing fruit. And what's really interesting is that in the Bible, a pruning hook symbolizes prosperity and peace. There are three verses in the Bible that speak of beating spears into pruning hooks. So, no matter what we call it, the cruciform life or pruning, it's painful. Let's not minimize it. Responded to wrongly, you become bitter. Someone says the wrong thing and it sets you off. But once you accept the cruciform life, you have a settled peace. You really do. It results in surrender to Jesus, and it bears great fruit. And I want you to see how it bears great fruit by looking at verse 15. That's the purpose of adversity as we advance through life. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Well, think about the adversity Paul faced. He was persecuted and expelled from Antioch, but he spread the gospel to those people. He was chased out of Iconium, stoned and left for dead at Lystra, stoned. He was beaten and thrown in prison in Philippi, forced out of Thessalonica, fled from Berea. They plotted to kill him in Greece. He was at the center of a riot in Jerusalem and transported to be tried at Rome. But at every stop, he spread the grace of Jesus, the gospel, to more and more people. Now you say, okay, that's Paul. How does that apply to me? Well, let's walk through this. Before suffering... Can you say that your primary focus was spreading the grace of Jesus to more and more people? I can't say that. Let's ask a really hard question. And this is not, don't say anything aloud. You can look at your spouse if you want, or maybe your spouse will look at you when I ask this. (laughs) On a a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being self-centered and 10 being God-centered, what number would you give yourself? Now, this is not for morbid self-examination, or excuse me, self-condemnation. It is for honest self-examination. If your dominant thoughts and goals for 2024 so far are, well, where do I get to go? What do I get to do? What new experience can I have? If those are your dominant thoughts and goals, why is that? Now, there's nothing wrong with and everything right with thinking about, and enjoying blessings. Don't have false guilt over prosperity and pleasure in your life. Uh, That's fundamentalism. But unless your dominant thoughts and goals are biblical, those other things, they could be idol worship. Because a cruciform life would have thoughts and goals that look something like this. How can I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? My thought life, I struggle with it so How can I win victory there? Or just simply this how can I bless other people this year? How can I gain the courage to tell that person I often see about the grace of Jesus in a bold, straight, and kind way? How can I glorify Jesus this year? What are the next steps I need to take to become more like Jesus? What are the blind spots God needs to winnow out of my life? Those thoughts usually don't take priority in our life until we've suffered. But rightly responded to, suffering brings a humble self-control. That's what's often needed. James says it's like breaking in an animal. He said, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, It's not that hard as a Christian to avoid sinful activity. It really isn't. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're struggling with pornography, put the phone down. It's not hard. <laughs> Just give, to give an example. It's not that hard to avoid sinful activity, but it is very easy to fall into a rut of sinful passivity. Just avoid this path of righteousness, and therefore I might not suffer. The cross hollows out the self-life. It makes you concerned with the Christ life. So Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He said not I, but Christ, but the mantra today is not Christ, but I. Paul said he was crucified with Christ. A.W. Tozer says being crucified with Christ means three things. Number one, you're facing only one direction. Number two, you can never turn back. And number three, you no longer have any plans of your own. Now, I hope you're still with me. Not if you're still with me. All right, thank you. You might say, I agree with that all this is true but there's a there's a problem. My suffering has worn me down to nothing. I've been ground down to a little tiny crumb. My tires have no tread. Then this next verse is for you. I want you to see the perseverance in adversity as we advance through life. Verse 16 Paul said therefore we do not lose heart. I want to be very practical. How can you avoid losing heart in the middle of suffering. I want to give you just two ways this morning. Number 1 is this, completely completely trust the word of God. Remember the thief on the cross? As he's dying, Jesus says, remember or he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." The only thing that thief had to hang on to in his dying moments was the word of Christ nothing else and Jesus spoke those divine words as they were both hanging on a cross there was nothing in that thief's circumstances that indicated this word of Christ would be fulfilled until three days later when Jesus exploded from that tomb you and I the truth is don't have much more evidence that the word of God is true than that thief did except for one thing The inward witness of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of the believer. So the Bible says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know, we may be certain about the things freely given to us by God. So you can avoid losing heart by completely trusting in God's word. and put. If you're not suffering today, then put God's word in your heart. Store it up like like food for the winter. Store it up in your heart so it'll be there when you suffer. Number two, you can avoid losing heart when you recognize that God is renewing you day by day. Keep reading in verse 16. He says, though the outer man is decaying, can I get an amen? Though "though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So if you're sick or tired, or you're sick of being tired, or you're tired of being sick, you've experienced this verse. The process of physical decay is happening at this moment, but for a Christian, the process of spiritual growth is inevitable. That word renewed means to make new. The Holy Spirit will not fail in renewing your soul. He didn't come to remodel your body. He came to make your soul new, and he's doing that at this very moment. So look at verse 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I I remember distinctly uh, being a young Christian, getting kidney disease, reading that verse and saying, you got to be kidding. And you might say this morning, my troubles are not light. Well, Paul's troubles weren't light. Paul said earlier in this letter that he was so burdened that he despaired even of life. Part of what he's teaching here is this. The suffering you face can produce an eternal weight of glory if you suffer like Jesus suffered. The suffering you face can produce an eternal weight of glory if you suffer like Jesus suffered. And you say, I can't suffer like Jesus suffered. I can't die on the cross for anyone's sins. But if we suffer while obeying Jesus, it produces an eternal weight of glory, and here's why. And I think it was John Piper that said this. This isn't original with me, but right here on the spot, I can't remember who said this. In suffering, your temptation is similar to the temptation Jesus faced. Because in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Remember, Jesus was fully man and fully God. The fully man, he didn't want to go to the cross. And he could have refused the cross But instead, he walked in obedience to the will of God. So when we're suffering, our temptation is to say, I'm not going to obey Jesus any longer. This is hurting me. And you allow bitterness to creep in, or anger, or unforgiveness, or apathy to enter into your soul. But instead, you choose to walk with Jesus. You seek to please him, even in your suffering. You don't become bitter against him. And when that happens, you learn a crucial truth. What awaits you in heaven is the infinite opposite of what afflicts you on earth. What awaits you in heaven is the infinite opposite of what afflicts you on earth. So we can persevere through adversity by, number five, having the perspective of adversity as we advance through life. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Temporary. They're, they're just passing away. But the things which you're not seeing are eternal. It's all a matter of having an eternal perspective. If you're living for this world, if that's where your heart's tied, if you're concerned about the approval of man, if your current enjoyment and future plans all have to do with this world, When suffering comes, you'll be crushed. But if you live with an eternal perspective, you'll recognize that this brief life isn't even a blip on the radar screen. It's not that fast. I mean, do you remember those examples from earlier? Let me try to to illustrate this. The young parent watching the two-year-old die of cancer. An eternal weight of glory is being laid up for a parent who holds fast to God through it all who refuses to give in to anger or bitterness that single 39 year old who wants to be married it means an eternal weight of glory if that person avoids jealousy or self-pity even though that person may never be married the businessman who holds fast to <clears throat> biblical ethics and is punished for it it means an eternal weight of glory if he doesn't give in to the temptation to lie or get revenge. So here's the message we need to hear in suffering. Your life is beautiful. Your life is sacred. But your life is fragile. I mean it seems like there's hardly a week that goes by that you don't hear of some kind of tragic, unexpected death. I I was watching the ESPN 30 for 30 on Reggie White. You may not know who Reggie White was. He played for the Green Bay Packers and the Philadelphia Eagles, an incredible defensive lineman. And they called him the minister of defense because he preached the gospel during that time. And it's unfortunate. It's a bit of a hit piece on him. But near the end of it, they brought in some former teammates. And this was just made, okay, so it's 2023, and he died, I think, in 2004. And they talked about what was it like when he died, and they had four or five guys on camera, and it was almost as if they were just hearing about his death. I mean, they were just stunned. And I couldn't help but get the impression as I watched that, I was on the treadmill, but um, I couldn't help but get the impression as I watched that that they thought death never comes. Death always comes. I might not be in this pulpit next week. You might not be in this chair next week. So we have to live with this eternal perspective. And friend, if you've never been saved, you have to realize that your sins deserve hell. But Jesus paid the price on the cross of God's punishment for your sins, and only he could do that. And as a result, he lays claim to our life as our master. He's, he's not a bumper sticker. He's not a co-pilot. He's Lord. And if you've never believed this morning, and I know we have many watching online, so I want you to hear this as well. Jesus is speaking to you tenderly right now, and he draws you to God gently, but for you to have your sins forgiven, he has to be your master. Jesus is no weakling. He can't be if he's strong enough to overcome the law of sin and death. So believe in Jesus. Submit to him. You yield your life to him by faith. Do not make the mistake of saying, Jesus is my Savior, but I live my life according to my own rules. That's a delusion. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. This week, I listened about four times to an old song, and I mean, it's it's going to date me. Some of you younger people are going to go, "What are you talking about?" But it's by a brilliant musician that God took home at age 29. His name was Keith Green. How many of you know who Keith Green was? Well, way more than I thought. Um, God is God. Why he took him at age 29? I would love for him to still be around. The only guy I ever know who could preach through music. You listen to his songs and. I listened to the uh, Prodigal Son Suite, if you're familiar with that. It's a 12-minute long song. I listened to that coming back from uh, St. Luke's on Monday, and I've got tears in my eyes. Because it speaks so well to the mercy God has on us. The Prodigal Son. When the son came home from his life of sin... He wanted the Father to accept him. And here are the lyrics Green wrote. He said, Father, I've sinned. Heaven's ashamed. I'm no longer worthy to be called, or excuse me, I'm no longer worthy to wear your name. But I've learned that my home is right where you are. So, so, Father, please take me in. I've learned that my home is right where you are. So, Father, take me in. Those words are for you if you've never been saved. Give your life to him. Believe upon him. If you have been saved but you've drifted, say you know what I've not I've not lived this cruciform life I've been I know Jesus but I've been living life for myself those words are for you I've learned that my home is right where you are so father please take me in and he will he will receive you he will save you he will change you he will forgive you whatever this situation is come to him. And despite any suffering that you might face, you can rest secure this morning in the truth that all that he has will be shared in glory with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your infinite grace and mercy. I'm so very aware that my own sins make me deserve hell, but that's not what you give me, and that's not what you give anyone who comes to you. So I pray that anyone watching this who's here today or maybe listens to this, who knows, years later, would be saved in a glorious way. And I pray for every person here who is suffering that they would recognize what God might be doing in their life. Because you bring every one of us, you bring that cross to bear in every one of our lives, and I pray that we would submit it, that we would recognize that you're calling us to die to self and live to you so that the life of Jesus will be manifest in our body to other people. Thank you for the amazing work you do in each of our lives, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.